All right, welcome everyone. Week five of Gangrene and Goudreau right here on percolatedmedia.net. This is Goudreau once again. And as you can tell by my voice, I am very pleased with what I witnessed on Sunday. But before I get to that and just both expressing my joy, but also keeping things in perspective, which I feel I always have to do as someone who labels themselves a fairly level-headed fan, despite what past phone calls from my binge days would lead you to believe. Got to talk about what's happening here on the site. This week is a big one on Three Men in a Retrospective. We are indeed reviewing the Snyder Cut, or the Zack Snyder's Justice League, as it's officially called. Yes, the four-hour behemoth will be getting its own feature-length episode. A couple weeks ago, we did do Justice League 2017, or Justice League, as it's jokingly referred to the theatrical cut, whatever you want to call it. We did do that in full discourse, as we usually do, but I felt when I was putting the schedule together, because this Batman retrospective was my idea to be one of our, next to Bond, our biggest retrospective Garrett and I have ever done together in the almost 10 years we've been doing this. I felt, because the Snyder Cut developed in such a, in a way that we'll talk about on the show, and the fact that it is so over double the length of the theatrical cut, I'd feel incomplete. So I guess working with Garrett has made me an asshole completionist like he is because I said we need to do the Snyder Cut just to A, be complete in our encapsulation of the Batman franchise, but B, and more importantly, to talk about the potential precedent it has set going forward and whether or not it is part in the pun justified and how it got made. So that drops this Friday. I hope everyone checks it out. It is a, a very great discussion. I think it's one of the best ones we've ever done on all the different facets that we cover. But speaking of things to cover, I can't believe I'm saying this five weeks into an NFL season. The Jets have a winning record. Three and two. First time since 2017 that the Jets are 500 or better at this point in the season. So that's exciting in and of itself because over the last few years, I've been so used to the Jets coming out of the gate just flat on their face and our season being over by Columbus Day weekend, which just happened. So it is a bit of a different feeling as I sit here with a certain amount of optimism and excitement. Like, I feel genuinely excited about this team and their future, not just for this season, but for years to come, than I have in a, in a very long time. I've been a Jets fan for, you know, nearly the entirety of my life. So it, it's not a common feeling that perpetuates in me. So I, I couldn't be more excited with, with where things are at the potential going forward. But what made it sweeter, and I do have to let some Dolphin fans know if you're listening to this, A, thank you for coming to the dark, proverbial dark side. I do need to let you know that I am not going to be doing any sort of I told you so or shinning on you guys because like I said at the beginning, I want to keep this in perspective. Talk about the game in full and the circumstances that occurred during it because the game did swing in our favor almost immediately. 
and that cannot be denied. But before I get to that, it's been so fucking long since the Jets have won a division game. And if you're wondering, Matt, how long has it been? 12 straight division losses. Last time the Jets won a division game prior to Sunday was in December of 2019 against the very same Miami Dolphins. Same team, obviously not the same coaching staff for either party involved, for either franchise. So it's been something that's paramount to the objectives of this team going forward are starting to get connected and checked off, checked off as the season has unfolded. Because while I talked about in week one that I didn't expect a playoff run, there were some things that marked tangible progress that I needed to see. Number one, win a game in September. Jets did that. I don't remember exactly how long it was. Oh, it was September of 2018 was the last time they won a September game prior to this season that's begun. So that was good. If this sounds pathetic, you got to remember, the Jets are coming from the depths of hell. I can't emphasize this enough. They're in a... The rebuild part is over as far as assembling the pieces. Now it's about steady progression. So they won a game in September. Number two, you got to win games in your division. You can't be the doormat all the time. And week five, we won a division game. And I have to be honest, if there was one team of the three co-tenants in our division that I wanted this win against more than anyone, it is the Dolphins. I hate the Dolphins more than I hate any other team in the NFL. If you're outside of the AFC East, you you got to... How do, I, how do I say this? The Jet-Dolphin rivalry has been around since almost any of us listening have been uh, alive to see. Dolphins were founded in 1966. And if you look at the history, the Jets-Dolphins, there's been memorable moments for both sides. Whether it was the A.J. Dewey game in 1983. There was an AFC title game that cost the Jets going back to the Super Bowl, which they still have not done since Super Bowl III. You had 1994, which was the Dan Marino fake spike game. You had those two go the Dolphins' way. But we got our comeuppance with the Monday Night Miracle. If you guys know, that was the 30-7 to comeback against the Dolphins. And it seemed like there was a kind of a resurgence in this rivalry which is sort of to be expected once Rex Ryan took over the Jets. And before that, you had Chad Pennington, who signed with Miami coming from the Jets to beat Brett Favre and Eric Mangini to knock them out of the, the playoffs. But when Rex came in, it seemed like that, that energy was back. And you had, whether it was Jason Taylor signing with the Jets, going from Miami despite Taylor making some pretty derogatory comments about the Jets while he was a Dolphin. You had the game where Rex Ryan was making some gestures at Dolphin fans. It's been... It's back, so to speak. And the Dolphins do lead the series 57-56-1. So all in all, I can't stand the Dolphins. So I could not have been more excited, because this game... Part of the reason why I wanted it more than anything, and I apologize that my preamble's 
running a bit long, but like I said, context is key for me. This offseason, not only do we have a new head coach with the Dolphins, Mike McDaniel, who Robert Sala knows because they both come from the Shanahan San Francisco coaching staff, and they both served as assistants for the Texans back in the mid-2000s, was gaslit further with the Tyreek Hill situation where Tyreek chose Miami over the Jets. And it did rub a lot of us the wrong way. Can't exactly fault him because the Jet Dolphins have had winning records. The Jets have not. So the Dolphins, if you're Tyreek looking for a win-now situation, you're far more likely to succeed if you choose the Dolphins than the Jets. But his comment about who the Jets, nah, man, I knew I was always going to pick Miami no matter what. That was his comment. So that added some bulletin board material, as they call it, I think, for the Jets locker room. And it, and it showed during this game. But between the consecutive losses in the division, Dolphin fans, I hate Dolphin fans the same way Dolphin fans hate us Jet fans. We just don't get along. Unless you're TM and I. And TM over at Binge, him and I were texting throughout the game, having some conversations. It's all, in, at the end of the day, it's all, it's all in good fun. But there is a certain amount of satisfaction as far as beating the Dolphins in the way that we did. So I guess now we can talk about the actual game. 40 to 17 was the final score. And to be honest, the game was significantly closer than that score would lead you to believe. So that's point number one I want to make. The Jets did not run away with this until the fourth quarter, which is a conversation I do want to have looking at this season so far in a little bit. But it was 1917. After the Jets were up 12-0, Miami started to come back into the game. And most of the third quarter was was pretty blah. And then uh, uh, the, the momentum shifted quite a few times in this game. Start off, Jets were on full all gas, no break when they were up 12-0. Then Miami started to take what was given to them. They got back in the game. But then a missed field goal by Jason Sanders. I think it was like a 54, 55-yard kick that he missed. And the Jets then took the ball, turnover on downs, marched down the field, got the touchdown to go up 26-17. And from there, it just got out of hand for the Dolphins. There was a strip sack. Jets ran it in again. Miami had the ball, turnover on, I think it was a turnover on downs again. Jets score again to make the final score 40-17. to So while that sounds like a blowout, it really was not until the last portion of the game. So I need to get that out there and clarify for listeners who didn't watch this game. Do I give a shit? No. A win's a win. Whether you win by one or you win by 30. A win's a win. And for Robert Sala, this is a key win for two reasons. Number one, as I mentioned, division games, you've got to win those if you want a shot at the playoffs. Number two... I believe this is his first, and I, and I could be wrong, but I, I'm pretty sure I'm right on this, that this is his first double-digit win as the head coach of the Jets. I want to say I want to say I'm right on that, or, or I read that somewhere. All in all, there was some something where th- this was a sort of a statement win 
for the Jets, if you want, if you want to call it that. You know, breaking the division streak, one of your first home game of the season. So it, I think it was important for Salah to, to win this game and win it somewhat emphatically, which they did. Because when 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 the Jets needed to retake the lead and put their foot down on the throat of the Dolphins, they did it. So props to them. So that's the general overview of, of the game. So I want to get into now some of the, the nitty-gritty details. Number one, Teddy Bridgewater did get knocked out of this game on the first series. Called a corner blitz, which the Jets surprised me because they're not a team that blitzes a lot with this cover three scheme. Teddy Bridgewater gets hit. It's called a safety, even though it really shouldn't have. And I'll get into the refs momentarily because I have words. But Bridgewater, because of the concussion protocols, and especially with Miami of all teams, I'm sure they did not want to take any chances or risk any further scrutiny on the part of the media or the NFL. So Teddy was out with the game. Then their, their Skyler Thompson comes in, seventh round pick. And I'm saying, oh boy, here we go. Because like I said, I talked about this with the when, when Kenny Pickett came in for Trubisky. I was having flashbacks to the Baker Mayfield game where he came in and took over after the Jets were leading pretty decisively. I'd seen that song and dance before, and I thought, all right, here we go. And at halftime, I still was feeling that way. It was, I don't know what the score was. I think it was 19-14 at the half. And what happened was the worst thing the Jets could have done was give up a two-minute touchdown drive and allow Miami to make it a one-score game going into the half. And that's exactly what happened. I was texting TM about how I am not convinced still about this coaching staff, particularly on the defensive side of the ball, because you cannot allow that to happen against a third-string quarterback who also lost their left tackle in this game. You can't let them march up the field and score the touchdown and let them also get the ball to start the second half. Fortunately, they held him to a field goal to make it 19-17. But I, I felt that what I was seeing defensively was not turning the page. It looked like the same old shit that I've been complaining about when the defense has not been up to par. But much like the Jets themselves, when offensively they had to take control of the game, the defense, when they had to make the big plays, they did. Sauce Gardner with the safety and the pick. Carl Lawson, I think there were 16 quarterback hits that the Jets got. A couple sacks. All the big boys up front had had some pressures and, and hits. A couple sacks. But the, the play of the game, and this is me being a salty Jet fan, but you know what? I feel like I've earned it. I don't like to gloat too much, but nothing made me laugh more than watching Quinn and Williams stiff-arm Tyreek Hill into oblivion. Because make my no mistake, I think the Jets looked at this and said, we're going to prove him wrong. Because Tyreek, the one thing he has not been able to do is keep his mouth shut about how great Miami is and how great Tua is. I know Tua didn't play. But his comments, I don't think his decision and his follow-up served him well and served his team well because the Jets looked motivated. And it sort of looked like they were running the score up at the end of the game. But look, not like Miami's defense stopped them, but what can you do? So defensively, they stepped up when they had to. 
And considering the circumstances, the game never should have been that close. But when they pulled away, they made sure that the game was out of reach for pretty much the entirety of the fourth quarter. So good on them. Now i got to talk about the good thing. Why I'm so excited about where this team is and what, what they could do. After so many years of bad drafting, case in point, 2010 to 2018, not a single first-round pick is still on the team. From Sam Darnold through Muhammad Wilkerson, none of the guys drafted from 2010 to 2018 in the first round are still on the Jets. Now, fortunately, they've made up for that because these past two drafts look amazing and really instill confidence that this team is going in the right direction and has the foundation needed to be a sustainable team for at least 10 plus years. I I genuinely believe that. And you're starting to see the pieces come together. And I got to start with the the two biggest bright spots, I think, through five games. Our number one is Elijah Vera Tucker, the first round pick they got. One of two they got in the Jamal Adams trade, who they traded up to get, which will be a topic later on in the show. But he has played four positions on this offensive line. Left guard, right guard, and this season, he started out at right guard. And with the injuries to Dwayne Brown and Mekhi Becton and Max Mitchell, he's played both tackle spots and has not given up a sack for a guy who never played right tackle at USC. Back-to-back weeks to play both tackle positions and not give up a sack against teams in Pittsburgh and Miami who have vaunted defensive fronts. I know T.J. Watt didn't play last week, and I know the Dolphins were without their top two corners, but they still, he is more than justified taking him in the first round and be trading up for him, which when we get to receipt time, I have very choice words about. Number two is Brees Hall the second-round running back they got in the Sam Darnold trade. I'm not one to be hyperbolic. I never choose to be. If you listen to me talk about movies, I'm not one to over-exaggerate unless I genuinely believe in it. This is the best running back tandem I have seen on the Jets in my entire lifetime. There's been some good ones. Sean Green and LaDainian Tomlinson. I thought Chris Ivory and Bilal Powell were a good one-two punch. But these two young guys... Brees Hall and Michael Carter, they give me all the confidence in the world that they can really put this offense on their back if they have to. Because the Shanahan offense, it's run run first, short passes, a lot of screens, a lot of yards after the catch. Both of these guys are, they are delivering. Brees Hall had almost 200 yards from scrimmage. And Michael Carter had the two rushing touchdowns. And how about him doing the waddle? Doing Jalen Waddle's uh, penguin waddle in the end zone. To me, this is rubbing some dirt in your eye, but I, I think there, there's a swagger to this team. There's a confidence that is really starting to take hold that they're they're not the same old Jets. And I think they're using that old slogan as motivation to play up to their levels. And as Brees Hall said, we're getting better. Like this is not the I don't think they're gonna bottom out here. I think they're just gonna continue to get better. So the the run game has stepped up, but these guys are also really good 
at shedding the first tackle and getting additional yardage. Like Michael Carter was dragging guys and he's like five, eight, I don't know, a buck, something, not the, not the biggest guy in the world, but dragging linebackers, Brees Hall as well into the end zone. It was like Braylon Edwards back when he was playing with the jets. So Vera Tucker and Brees Hall have been, everything is advertised. And you could say Vera Tucker's exceeding expectations given his versatility. The other picks that, We've gotten, obviously, there's Jermaine Johnson, who has done some great things when he's on the field. Looks like he got hurt day-to-day, according to Sala. So not when you see someone getting carted off, you always have the worst-case scenario in your head. Oh, God, they're out for the year. But it's good to hear that he's recovering. Garrett Wilson didn't have as big of a day as he's had in the past, certainly not like the Cleveland game. But he made the big third-down conversion. All the receivers in this game had at least one big catch. Corey Davis... Garrett Wilson, Elijah Moore, Tyler Conklin had a big catch, the tight end. Obviously, the running backs, Brees Hall had a 79-yard pass that he almost ran into the end zone. He was stopped at the one. So we're seeing a true nucleus of young guys that I think are going to be what make this team relevant in years to come. Now, obviously, this comes down to the big question, if Zach Wilson if he's the guy or not. But you can't deny this team is 2-0 with him under center this season. And in both games, he had a couple rough spots against Minnesota, but he orchestrated those two touchdown drives in the fourth quarter against Pittsburgh, not Minnesota, I'm sorry. We don't play Minnesota until later, Chad D. So take the L when that comes. But he had the two fourth quarter touchdown drives against Pittsburgh to win the game. And in this game, they orchestrated, they put up 21 points in the fourth quarter. And Zach did, did not have any passing touchdowns, but that's because a couple of them, they got stopped at the one-yard line. This was a pattern last year. Like, a lot of his throws should have been touchdowns, but they just couldn't cross into the fucking end zone. So I thought he really took command of the offense in this game. He wasn't trying to play hero ball. He wasn't overthrowing guys or throwing fastballs on bubble screens. This is the most confident he has looked. And while the numbers don't scream oh my God, he's the next coming of Patrick Mahomes. He doesn't have to be with all these weapons. And with a defense that is slowly getting better and gelling better, he doesn't have to be Superman. He just has to make the big plays when he has to and not be stupid or reckless. If he can do that, then we've got our guy. And I'm starting to believe more in Zach Wilson. And we'll see how the rest of the season plays out, but The team also has a different attitude when he's under center that was not there with Flacco, even when they won that game against Cleveland. I I think part of it is that he's, he's young. He's the same age as everyone else. You know, all these guys are like 22 to 24, these young guys that I all mentioned. So I'm very excited. And I, I think Zach, he had the rushing touchdown. I mean, this season he's got in two games, he's got a passing touchdown. At least he's got a rushing touchdown. He's got a receiving touchdown. Watching this blue-eyed, dimple-faced, you know, boy, basically what he looks like, run it into the end zone, put his shoulder down into a 300-pound defensive lineman for the touchdown. I mean, you can't coach that stuff. He 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 wants to win, and I like seeing that. And I think he's only going to get better if this trajectory is what we're going to see. So looking at the, the young guys, they're all... They're all doing their part, and it's it's making me excited. 
But speaking of doing your part, these goddamn refs, I am so tired of feeling like the referees, and this is nowhere near an isolated incident in this game. We've seen it for years that the referees have too much of an influence on the ultimate outcome of games. Case in point, if you want a recent example, the roughing the passer on Tom Brady. Don't even get me started on that. I just want Tom Brady to go the fuck away. And I don't think I speak for Jets Jet fans on that. But in this game, the safety on Teddy Bridgewater really should not have been intentional grounding. That was a missed call. There were some... I Pass interference is always a weird thing. And I feel like the referees always reward underthrown balls by throwing the flag on defenders because the receivers have to come back for it. And there's just contact is going to happen. I don't know what you want these guys to do. The same thing with guys sacking the quarterback. I know there's a written thing of what you're supposed to do, but in the heat of the moment in a sport that is violent by nature, you can try to make it as quarterback friendly as possible, but just the, the sport itself always leans towards a physicality that injuries and contact are just an inevitability. It's what these guys sign up for. They make millions of dollars to do this, well aware of the health risks. And I'm tired of seeing these refs on underthrown balls throw the damn flag whenever they feel like it. It makes me delirious. Either team. I don't care if, it, if it's against me or if it's the other team. There was one on Sauce Garner. There was one on DJ Reed for a ball that was uncatchable. Thompson was clearly throwing it out of bounds. DJ Reed still almost made the interception, but they threw the damn flag. Face mask penalties on the Dolphins. False starts. It's just the refs. It's like they have It's like they have Tourette syndrome and their tick is just to throw the flag cuz they feel like it. Not to go on too much of a tirade, but it's really starting to drive me crazy that the referees can dictate the Ws and the Ls. In basketball, you know, they call it like sucking the whistle during the final two minutes of a game. I always feel like they just have they have one hand on the one hand on their pants and one hand in their pants with these flags. It, it's driving me nuts. But speaking of driving me nuts to transition into something else, I'll get back to this game, but let's go to receipt time. Number one is for Tyree Kill. I alluded to that earlier. Who the Jets? Yeah, the Jets that just stiff-armed you into oblivion and held you to what? 60 yards on 10 touches? Like Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddell did not dominate this game. I don't care that it was a third-string quarterback. That's a whole other conversation I'm going to get into momentarily. But my receipts, and they're pretty long, so you're all going to have to bear with me. This will turn into somewhat of a rant. But look, I have not done one of these in a very long time. Old school Goodrow rant. Here we go. Y'all can timestamp it. I am so fucking sick of analytics in the NFL. If I was a Charger fan, first and foremost, I would want Brandon Staley fired because he clings to analytics like you cling to your seat when you're watching a horror movie. And football analytics, by their very nature, are not perfect. It's not baseball. And I think applying that mentality to the NFL is stupid. Stats, numbers, analytics, whatever you want to call it. 
I'm not an analytical person. I think there is something about the feel of the game. And you can ask Lion fans about this, PJ, if you're listening, that sometimes you got to throw away the analytics and say, you know what, fourth and nine, even though they say go for it, we got to punt the ball. It's, common sense should prevail over computers. Like, there's something about the human condition that is worth more than any formula or statistic you can throw out there. So why do I bring up statistics and the numbers and taking receipts? Where where does this roadmap of, of mathematics lead to the Jets? Here's where I want the receipts. Football analytics in the draft drive me up the wall. I mentioned Brees Hall and Elijah Vera Tucker. These are both players that the Jets traded up for and analytic-minded draft analysts, or as I call them, basement-dwelling, you know, geeks behind a keyboard, just slam these picks because, oh, you can't trade up for a running back. Oh, you can't trade up for a guard. It's not worth anything. Even if there's legitimate evidence that Brees Hall was not the best move, because we always talk about trading up for running backs. Are they a dime a dozen? To a certain extent, yes, because a lot of teams nowadays use multiple back systems. It's not a, you don't have a belt, many bell cows anymore. Hell, we have Saquon Barkley, his resurgence, he's one of those guys. But when you, when you have someone like, there was a guy in PFF talking about how the Jets should have drafted Malik Willis, a quarterback in the second round, instead of taking Brees Hall. Considering they spent the number two overall pick of Zach Wilson the year prior, good luck convincing me to take your side. It's just a dumb take, and they talk about how using a premium pick on a running back or a premium pick on a guard. Here's the what I want to get into. People don't realize that analytics, there is a certain amount of imperfection to it. A lot of people are just anti-running back. Because on average, a running back is most likely less valuable than any other skill position, wide receiver, quarterback, uh, left tackle, corner, you know, th those things. But you got to look at the common sense thing that I alluded to earlier. The Jets had drafted a, a franchise quarterback, presumptive in Zach Wilson. you got to give him as many weapons as possible. And Brees Hall was considered the number one running back in the draft by a, a landslide. And you look at his prospecting, like the comparisons, they justified it. And they did not take him in the first round. He had a first round grade, and they took him in the beginning of the second round. If you look at Brees Hall through these five games, ranked sixth among all running backs in the NFL, not just rookies, sixth among all running backs in scrimmage yards, and he represented 61% of the Jets' total offense against Miami. And to furthermore, per proverbially whip my dick out and piss on these analysts, Hall is doing this on his own. Apparently, almost 70% of his rushing yards come from after contact. He's got at least five missed tackles after the catch. So spare me the, the fifth round draft pick that we used to trade up to get Brees Hall for some, could have been some backup linebacker that never sees the light of day because he's so far down the depth chart. Give me a break. 
taking receipts on all you who said, oh, you can't draft the you can't trade up for a running back. I got a two-finger salute for you. And Joe Douglas does too. But Elijah Vera Tucker got more scrutinized. He was called the worst trade by someone, Seth Walder, taking receipts on you. Before he ever played it down, because they said training up for a guard isn't smart. Speaking of smart, I have to talk about the, the Jimmy Johnson formula, which is basically equating, you know, grading certain picks being worth more than others, trading up. Um, so according to that chart, if you look at what the Jets did to trade up for Veritaker, they, they traded picks 23, 66, and 86 for 14 and 143. So by Jimmy Johnson's math, which all these analysts love to swear by like it's the Bible, they traded 1180 worth points to receive 1134 so that difference is about 45 and a half points and if you equate that to a pick in the draft it's 126 so effectively that means that the jets traded the equivalent of a fifth round pick to go get Elijah Vera Tucker and to that guy Seth who said oh guards aren't valuable the interior of the offensive line is where a lot of your your running game comes from. And a bad interior offensive line play, that can also ruin your quarterback, just like a bad corner or a bad wide receiver who drops can wreck a game. So claiming that a position is not valuable, I think is, to a certain extent, that's absurd. And not all situations are created equal. When the Jets traded to get Farrah Tucker, their O-line was still not a complete process. Go get the guy that you think will improve your team. And every draft class is not created differently. So looking at Vera Tucker, he's been one of the most valuable offensive players in the league this year. And without him, this Jets O-line would be significantly worse. So analytics have a certain amount of value but I'm so tired of them being the be-all, end-all to justify these, these basement-dwelling, pencil-chewing, thin-skinned geeks who value numbers as the sole, exclusive, end-all, be-all in the NFL. So I'm taking receipts on you guys. Because these two guys look pretty goddamn good. So there's my rant. I don't know how long that took. I hope someone clocks it. But I just, I've been meaning to get that off my chest because it, it's driven me nuts. Because their production is far exceeding the fifth round draft picks that they equivocally gave up to go get them. So there's that. They're, they're look, they, these guys look good. Dare I say they look great. Just knock on wood, no injuries. But I'm, I'm very impressed with, with these guys. And I got to give Robert Sala credit. I still don't think he's perfect at this job. I questioned the fourth and two empty shotgun pass on midfield when it was still a two-point game. I think in that spot, you just got to run the ball. With your running backs, with the game Brees Hall was having, just hand it off and let him get the two yards. Don't go empty backfield and throw a pass 20 yards downfield to Corey Davis. Should have been a flag. No flag, but... Look, you, you just gotta you gotta be smart. This ties into my analytic thing. Just run the damn ball.
but he's three and one since his receipt comments, and that's got to count for something. Clearly, these guys are buying into his his message, and that only works if you're winning. It's a lot harder. Like, look at Dan Campbell in Detroit. I think his uh, his his demeanor is starting to wear out its welcome because they're losing. And if Salah things take a 180, he may have to change up his message. But I'm seeing improvement in him as a coach. I still think they're making some questionable decisions, and I'm not crazy about this cover three scheme at all, as I was well documented on the show. But they're trending in the right direction, and that's all you can ask for. And what's really impressive, and I think is a sign of coaching, is how this team is playing in the fourth quarter. In five games, they have outscored their opponents 79-20 to 20 in the fourth quarter. So they're, they're playing important and their best football when it matters the most. They closed against Cleveland, which required a lot of things to go their way, but they still had to execute. Double-digit comeback against Pittsburgh. And in this game, to put up 21 unanswered against Miami to put the game out of reach. And had five rushing touchdowns. First time since 1993 the Jets have had that. And they didn't throw a touchdown. It was all on the ground. Brees Hall had two. Michael Carter, uh, Brees Hall had one. Michael Carter had two. Zach Wilson ran in a touchdown. And Braxton Berrios ran a touchdown in on a, on a reverse. Wish they'd incorporate him more in the passing game, but it's nice to see him get a touchdown because he's, he's one of the, the unsung heroes of this team, as he was last year. So clearly there is a, there's a vibe around the Jets from the coaching staff down, where they're actually feeling like a team. And this was, for me, one of the most satisfying wins that the Jets have had in a very long time. So I am I'm ecstatic that we're 3-2 and two after five weeks, because going back to my receipts, I guess receipt time is still not done. Again, people saying, oh, the Jets will be 0-9 at the bye week, or they'll... They'll, they'll win the first game against Baltimore and then lose their next eight. Boy, you guys are looking dumb. And here's where I want to get into some more media hypocrisy. If the Jets had blown these games against Cleveland with Jacoby Brissett, against the Steelers with Pickett and Trubisky, and this game against Thompson, they'd all be saying, oh, the same old Jets. You know, they can't beat the backups. But when they beat the backups, it's, oh, come on, they're just backups. You got to be consistent. Yes, they did not play or beat Tua or Ben Roethlisberger or, I don't know, insert Browns quarterback here. The fact of the matter is the old Jets would have blown those games, but they didn't. This year, they didn't. Two of them, two of the three wins involved comebacks. The Jets led this entire game, but then they put their foot on the gas and just embarrassed the Dolphins in the fourth quarter. So I'm tired of the media just never wanting to give the Jets any credit. Especially when so many of them said we'd be 0-5 at this point. Well, we got a winning record, so you all can, excuse my language, kiss my ass. Because things are changing. But at the same time, there is a certain amount of reality. Yes, they did play backups. But look at us. We played three games with our backup quarterback who has the mobility of a sunglass hut at CVS. We were on our fourth offensive tackle until Dwayne Brown came back this weekend. He had a great game for a guy who's not 100%. In years past, we've 
played a lot of games with backups. Or Scrubs, Luke Falk, Trevor Simeon, Bryce Petty, what's left of Joe Flacco. I've seen a lot of bad quarterbacks. I mean, it wasn't pretty towards the end of Josh McCown when he was with us. So we've been in that thing in the past, and people always said, oh, they never took pity on the Jets. They're like, oh, just backups. They suck. But now all of a sudden when we beat the backups, it's, oh, they're just backups. Please be consistent in your reporting. I don't need this Fox News-esque level on sports radio. Because I guarantee you, if they beat Green Bay next week, it's going to be, oh, well, the Packers aren't what they used to be. Oh, so beating the back-to-back MVP in his own stadium will mean nothing? We're going to put qualifiers on everything? Just because it's the Jets? If they beat the Broncos, it's going to be, oh, well, the Broncos are a disaster. Russell Wilson looks like crap. He had surgery that he likely used to excuse his shitty play. They beat New England. It's going to be, oh, well, you played Bailey Zappi and they have no one on offense. Because I guarantee you, those are going to be the narratives if the Jets win any of their next three games. And I want them to win two of the next three. Hell, I want them to go three for three. I think it's doable. Green Bay, Denver, New England. I think it's doable they win all three of those games. But I don't want to hear if they win any sort of qualifiers or taking away from their achievements. Because a win is a win. Injuries are part of the NFL. Lord knows I've seen it plenty of times. Last year, we had the most guys on IR of invested cap space on injured reserve. It's a fact. You can look it up. You didn't hear us bitching about injuries. Like I said, we played the first three games with our backup quarterback, and we still found a way to beat Cleveland. They sort of didn't do any favors on themselves, but we still had to do it. We still had to execute. So I apologize that I've come off as angry or... Uh, sort of defensive. But I think the way the media has always covered the Jets has bothered me. Outside of the when they're good, when they're like the Rex Ryan 2 playoff runs. Everyone sure kissed the rings then. But ever since then, whenever the Jets have any modest success, it's, oh, it's the Jets, or, oh, they're playing scrubs. So I, I fully believe that they're going to go into Lambeau next week and beat the Packers and be 4-2. and two. That'll be a great feeling. And I think it's it's going to happen. I'm not going to will it into existence. I think the, the betting line is Packers getting 7. I think the Jets will cover that at minimum. I just watched the Packers blow a game to the Giants who have just Saquon Barkley and no one else. And with these two running backs, and looking at the Packers' offense, and how good our corners have been playing, Sauce and DJ Reed. I like our chances, even in Lambeau. I don't fear the Packers like I would if Devontae Adams was still there. Although he's too busy getting into fights with cameramen on the sideline. So maybe it's a good thing he's not in Lambeau. So I'll be back next week to talk about what happens against the Packers, win or lose. And if they lose, hey, we're 3-3, we're 500-3. Three three, we're Still something to be proud of for a team that has finished last year in this spot. They were 1-4 after five games. The year before that, they were 0-5. They were 1-4 the year prior. So it's it's been a long time. 
if you're a Jet fan, puff your chest out. Be excited that this team is finally getting their act together. But at the same time, don't say that we're going to go on this playoff run or anything like that. you got to be realistic. they still got a ways to go because the AFC is still the AFC. And Buffalo is the class of the division until proven otherwise. But keep stringing wins like this. Good on Sala. Good on this coaching staff. Good on them for taking advantage of the opportunities when they present themselves. Go beat the Packers. Be 4-2 going into Denver. So thank you all very much for listening to Week 5 of Gang Green and Goudreau. I really enjoyed doing this show. It's even more fun after a win. But I still enjoy talking about the losses because I don't foresee, and I knock on wood when I say this, I don't think there's going to be any more blowouts barring some freakish injuries or or anything like that because I think this team's too talented at this point. And there's a certain confidence and belief and a stigma that I'm starting to see permeate. That makes me excited. But like I said, Jet fans, be excited, but also tamper your expectations. So thank you all very much for listening. This has been fun, and I'm looking forward to talking to you all next week after they play the Packers. So to close out, I did do the JETS chant during the game on Sunday. It was the first time I've done it in a long time, and got to say it felt fun. So till next time, thanks for tuning in, and we'll be talking to you guys soon. Thank you all very much for listening, and regardless of who your team is, a best of luck to you. Bye.